Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. All right, so for the second week in a row, I have handed over the responsibility of preparing and researching the episode to Kellen, which I'm excited about, and I think everybody else is excited about too. We've received a lot of great feedback from the episodes that Kellen does, but I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit nervous about this one, <laughs> just mostly because I, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't fully know what direction Kellen intends to take this one. The idea of it is intriguing to me but a little nerve wracking as well. So Kellen, why don't you go ahead and explain what we're doing and uh, we'll just, we'll see how this, how this plays out. Yeah. For everyone listening, I've kind of been pitching this idea to Corey that we need to do a sub series and scatter them out in between our regular episodes. And the content is something that might be uncomfortable for you as a listener. And it's because I think it's important for us to look at the other side, the counterpoints to what has been presented on this podcast. And from the perspective of trying to really cater to our audience, doing this is frankly counterintuitive. Everybody likes to hear information that agrees with their point of view. But the fact is that this podcast is an echo chamber. You know, I think we try to take a well-balanced and reasonable approach, but for the most part... We're presenting information that tells the story that collapses on our roadmap. And if you made it this far into the podcast, you're likely convinced that the world is in big trouble. So the second you hear someone say a counter argument to that or say that that might not be the case, your natural reaction will be to kind of bristle. 
it's in opposition to your paradigm. So human nature is to immediately disregard what doesn't fit in the parameters of your perspective. Anyways, I'm convinced that we don't have an infinite runway as a society and, you know, that we're headed for really sad, chaotic things. But I frankly would love to find out that we're wrong. And I think part of having an open mindset means we always have to be willing to admit that we could be wrong. I personally believe that if everyone in the world was just willing to admit that they possibly could be wrong about what they believe, we'd have much more open dialogue and people would learn a lot more. So what I want to do is take a topic that we've presented on in the past and look at kind of all the reasons people would say that we're wrong about that. And to each of those counterpoints, we can then say how valid we think they are. Like there might be some things where we say, well, there's no way to necessarily prove that or not prove that. There's other things where we might say, okay, that's just totally bogus. Some things that are out there might be really good valid points and it can help us refine the way that we see things. But if we're really seeking for truth, I think presenting the opposite side is important. Yeah, I love the way you put that. You know, like you mentioned, it's an echo chamber. When we're doing research for the podcast, we are, of course, finding sources that back up our claims, right? And so it's important if you really believe something is true based on the evidence that you found, you also have to look at all the evidence that claims to disprove what you believe. And the point of this episode and this series isn't for us to like cherry pick the easy things that we could debunk. It's not like we're trying to debate ourselves, you know, and, and, and make it an easy win for what we claim is going, you know, is, is going to happen. Like Kellen said, there's every possibility that in our research, we might find things that shake us a little bit. We might find some things that, that make us go, oh, interesting, I hadn't thought about it that way before, whatever. I personally don't believe that I'll ever be convinced that collapse won't happen when it comes to limits to growth and things like that. Those are fundamentally sound principles that are f factual and, and obvious to me. But like Kellen said, I think it's a good idea and it's important to see what's being said, what counter arguments there are to the arguments that we're making. And in some cases, yeah, we'll shoot it down and say that's crap and here's why. But at least I think we're being genuine and, and willing to be open with ourselves in discussing things that maybe we don't necessarily have an answer to. And if we don't have an answer to it, you might. And that's great. I think, you know, we'd, if anything like that comes up, we'd love to hear your responses as well. But anyway, well said, Kellen. I, I'm excited to, to dive into this. Yeah. And just to finalize the thought on that, all the time people in the collapse community and like the subreddit are so frustrated at people outside the community. And they're like, how can you not see this? Isn't it so clear to you that we're on this dangerous path? Why won't you listen? And yet, as soon as someone says something in opposition to the whole idea of collapse, they immediately disregard it without really listening to it. And there's probably a handful of people that normally listen to our podcast that right now are going to stop listening to this one because they're like, oh, I don't want to hear all that nonsense from the other side. But if that's the case, then in my opinion, you don't have any right to be upset with people that don't, won't listen to you. On the other hand, I think it's valuable to hear the counterpoints so that you can be more equipped to have conversations with others. If you know all the reasons in advance why someone might say that you're wrong, then in a sense, you can either be able to rebuttal what they say and have clear arguments outlined for your point of view, or you can validate the points that they make that are valid and demonstrate to them that you have thought these things through. Yeah, well said. Um, like I mentioned, we're not doing these episodes to set ourselves up for a faux debate in which we easily win, right? But there is value 
in hearing both sides so that you are better equipped to have conversations with people who have contrarian views. It also helps us because if we do find sort of holes in our understanding, it doesn't necessarily mean we're wrong, but it helps us to discover the areas in which our knowledge might lack, where we can do more research, where we can kind of further our understanding. And while it might be uncomfortable to do it this way, I think it's extremely valuable. Awesome. Well, several years ago, I was introduced to something you may have heard of before, Corey. They're known as logical fallacies. And I have become fascinated by these. I want to study them more and practice identifying them more. You'll hear about like ad hominem or poisoning the well or straw man or red herring, all these names for these logical fallacies. But it's basically a way to identify in any argument the manipulation or the biases or the lack of reasoning or the statements that just clearly aren't justified and helps you to move beyond the emotion of what's being said and simply identify whether it is logically sound. And so I hope we'll have more opportunity to speak to those logical fallacies in the future. But I think as we step through all of these counterpoints today, we'll want to set our biases aside as much as possible and evaluate their credibility simply based on logic. Okay, so the first one we are going to focus on, the first topic in this sub-series is resource depletion. And I did quite a bit of searching out there to just see all the arguments that people are making for why we don't need to worry about this and why they're saying that our resources aren't being depleted, that we have abundance, and that there's no real risk here. And, you know, with a topic like climate change, for example, there's so many naysayers. But with resource depletion... Most everything out there is agreeing with the fact that we're running out of valuable resources. However, here are some of the arguments I found against that. The first one is that they'll say, well, many in the past have claimed that we would run out of X, Y, or Z by now, and they keep being proven wrong. We keep not running out or we keep finding more. And in fact, there's a Wall Street Journal article, and I would have to get past a paywall in order to read the whole thing, but the title of it says... The world's resources aren't running out. And the subtitle, Ecologists worry that the world's resources come in fixed amounts that will run out, but we have broken through such limits again and again. And oftentimes that's paired with this idea that, like, the earth is so large. We as human beings are so tiny compared to this planet that we're on. In fact, the mass of all people on the earth is equal to one and a half trillionth the weight of the earth. And A number like a trillion is unfathomable. We're just this tiny, tiny speck. And all the bacteria on Earth combined are about 1,166 times more massive than all the humans on Earth. Right? So there's kind of two different ideas here. But one of them is just that we're a tiny speck in comparison to the Earth itself. There's plenty to go around. People have always said we're going to run out of stuff. And it seems like we never do. We just keep breaking past that again and again. So their argument is, clearly there's nothing really to worry about. So Corey, before moving on to some of the other arguments, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's interesting to think about it that way, because when you compare the size of all humans together, our mass compared to the mass of the earth, it does make it seem like we're pretty much nothing, right? And part of sort of my gut reaction to that is, yes, but look at what we're doing in regards to like climate change. Size doesn't necessarily matter, you know, our consumption of resources, you know, the vast majority of the mass of the earth is untouchable inside the, you know, beyond the crust, that sort of thing. 
so I do think it's interesting, but I, I think it's hard to actually get an accurate comparison of what that really means for resources. And then my second thought was, you know, you brought up logical fallacies and some of those arguments, I think, fall pretty hard into some logical fallacies. So the idea that, you know, someone's made a prediction in the past that didn't come true. And so therefore all future predictions are false as well. So that would be a logical fallacy. And, and another one would be this idea that we've had abundant resources up till now. We've even become more efficient and abundant in our resource usage. And therefore that's how it's going to be for the rest of forever. You know, there's, there's no reason to that. Again, I think that would be another pretty obvious, at least logical fallacy committed there. Yeah. Well said. I think personally, this argument doesn't hold any water. Now there is this kind of boy who cried wolf syndrome, right? This, uh, and at least from an emotional perspective, the way that we give credibility to others is typically how often they've been right about something in the past. So for example, somebody who's trying to make the best investment decisions, and there's some stock analyst out there who claims like, this stock is about to skyrocket. You put all this money in and then it tanks. And then maybe again, they make that claim about another stock. If you put money in again and lose money, chances are you're never going to listen to that analyst again. And you may even be wary to listen to analysts at all. Yeah, it, it can not only destroy their personal credibility, but it can make you kind of jaded and distrustful of anybody who makes those claims. And so I at least feel some level of sympathy or even empathy for people who make this argument. I don't think it's unfair for somebody to say, oh gosh, you've always said this is going to happen and it never does. So I'm going to start tuning you out. Yeah. And it's funny that you bring up the boy who cried wolf because on the one end, you're right. It completely can make people tune an individual out or whole idea out because it's been wrong so many times. But like Tom Murphy said in the interview that we did with him, he pointed out that, that perhaps the moral of that story isn't what most people think it is around the boy himself crying wolf and people ceasing to believe him, but around the fact that that bad thing did actually happen. And so, yes, I, I agree with you. People who are making predictions and bold predictions are doing a great disservice to the more reasonable people who are saying we're headed down a bad path. Our trajectory is not looking good. And eventually this doesn't end well. You know, the other people who are saying, you know, Guy McPherson, who's saying by 2020, half the population is going to be dead or whatever it is, is he's saying these days. And so people buy into that and then it doesn't happen and they're jaded by the entire thing. Or people who never bought into it, but are looking for reasons to discredit the whole idea of collapse find one of those predictions that didn't come true and say, this prediction didn't come true. This is a bunch of bull crap. When the moral of the story is, while yes, those guys are idiots for those predictions, it doesn't mean that collapse isn't going to happen and that the foundation of what we're talking about is correct. And that's such a tricky balance. I know you've talked about this frustration sometimes with scientists who have this reticence to make any sort of bold claims, who hold back and make only vague statements and won't get into any specifics because they don't want to be wrong. And in those cases, it's like, come on, give us something with some teeth in it that people can actually see what's happening and feel the danger and actually start to make changes. So there's that extreme. And then on the other extreme, they're saying, yeah, this exact year, three years from now, all of civilization is going to collapse. It can be tricky to find that. But yeah, going back to the logical side of this and just looking at the argument 
from a reasonable perspective, it is completely unjustified to say, if it hasn't happened before, then it will never happen. If that were the case, then nothing unprecedented would ever take place. And we see unprecedented things happen all the time. Okay, so let's move on to the next argument that I've seen floating around out there. There are some people who acknowledge that, hey, yeah, we've kind of picked all the low-hanging fruit when it comes to extracting resources, but they'll say technology has always been able to advance sufficiently to extract those more difficult-to-reach resources or to reuse or recycle the resources we've already extracted. And so if it ever gets too expensive to extract those resources, then we'll shift to other resources. And to demonstrate how this is presented, I'm going to read a statement from an article. And again, all of these will post in the episode description. This is just a little bit longer, but bear with me because I think it's important. It says, how can we be sure that technology will advance at an effective rate? Well, in many ways, it already is. Ore mines have expanded to the Arctic in recent years, and plans for deep sea mining operations and asteroid mining are underway for the more distant future. Heavy metals can be recycled from electronic waste, and elements such as nitrogen are extracted from the atmosphere to produce fertilizer. So, will we ever really run out of resources? In short, no, or at least not anytime soon. The Earth is far from actually running out of the resources we depend on. As time passes, they will just become more and more expensive as their extraction becomes less convenient, eventually being replaced by cheaper, reusable options when the cost becomes too ridiculous for continued use. I think this is where we get into sort of the gray area, because I think it's really important to distinguish and, and realize that not everything is black and white. That statement that you just read can be true in a lot of ways. It is true that our technology and the advancements we've made to get us to where we are today, you know, much of what that statement just read is is perfectly valid. If we hadn't had the technological advancements that we've had up to this point, you know, our population would be way smaller, our food per capita, our quality of life, all of that would be, you know, way further behind than it is now. So in that way, it's not black or white. We can't just say, oh, that entire statement is false. But what's interesting is where it gets to in the end there that sort of last statement is, well, what do we do when it gets too expensive? And they said, oh, well, we'll just simply replace it with cheaper options. We'll find a replacement for it. And I like how they put in the, the caveat there at the end. Are we running out of resources? No, at least not anytime soon, you know, and who knows what they mean by anytime soon. But, you know, they almost perfectly described what, what has happened with oil. You know, we started off with this low-hanging fruit. Conventional oil was super easy to get. Over time, the EROEI of oil has dropped lower and lower and lower. It's become much more difficult to extract, takes a lot more energy to get it out of the ground. And you know, it will eventually hit a point where oil in this example is not worth taking out of the ground anymore. And you know, at that point in this example, a lot of people will say, well, that's why we've got renewables, right? But we've had lengthy discussions about why renewables are not the answer at the scale that we're at in humanity. So I think what's, what's interesting and where it gets complicated here, but where it's important to to look at is that it's not as simple as just saying, oh, this resource has become too expensive. We can just rapidly shift now to a completely different resource that can keep humanity going at the rate that it's going. Yeah, I think you've done a good job at validating the points in there that are valid while speaking to some of the assumptions that are being made that we can't necessarily count on. Honestly, technology has done wonders for us. And I think there will be a lot of new technological advancements that come our way. And there is part of me that has hope that we will somehow crack the nut on energy, for example. 
And the one that seems most exciting, the option, is nuclear fusion. It almost seems like this unlimited amount of energy. But we've seen when we've dug into that, that we're still several decades away from being able to really figure that out and have it be cost-effective. I think the EROEI, that energy return on energy investment, is such a critical point here. And I think we will make advancements with energy and efficiency, for example. But then does that just mean we will use that to grow everything else and use up all of our other resources a lot more? That's what I find most fascinating about these arguments. And again, why I say it's not all black and white. You know, maybe we do come up in just the nick of time, nuclear fusion works out and we have unlimited basically sources of energy. Well, like Tom Murphy, and again, I'm quoting Tom Murphy here, says in one of his lectures, he uses that comparison of, of the kid who wants the pony and so the parents start with a gerbil and they slowly build them up to a dog and a goat and, and all these different animals. But in the end, they say you can't have the pony because you can't even take care of the gerbil. So again, why do we deserve nuclear fusion, unlimited access to energy, when we can't even use the fossil fuel energy that we've had responsibly? We're talking about resources in this episode. You know, imagine what humankind and capitalism would do with unlimited amounts of energy. That unlimited energy does not mean that we have unlimited resources for the plastics and the construction and the infrastructure and the food and the countless other resources that all go into making everything move the way it is. You think about exponential growth and how our population and economy production of goods has increased exponentially over the years and how if we had unlimited energy, that exponential curve would just continue to go vertical. Limits to growth still applies here. There are still finite resources on our finite planet. So solving one area doesn't necessarily solve all of them. And I think that's the hard part is that is that people who come up with arguments against collapse get hyper-focused on one area. So they might say, we're going to figure this energy thing out. Okay, great. Maybe we are. But what about all the other stuff and how that one thing that you're focusing on actually negatively impacts all the others? I agree with you that we're going to have some really interesting technological advancements in the future. I do think there's still yet more to come. I think humanity is very good at, you know, increasing quality of life, at least for the semi-wealthy. And, and those things will continue to happen. But those technological advancements, they're not an answer. As we've seen with the Can Technology Save Us episodes, they're not an answer to the overall, all these overarching problems that will result in collapse. And a couple of last things about this statement that I read. We talked about with the first argument, it's unfair to say, well, this has never happened before, so it's never going to happen in the future. With this argument, it's kind of that same thing, but inverted. You can't say, well, we've always come up with technological solutions in the past, so that means we'll always be able to in the future. Most of our technological advancements now require so many more resources than in the past to develop. And so if resources are what we're running out of or struggling to find enough of, then it's going to be extremely challenging to feel like we can allocate resources to finding new solutions. The other thing that I think is interesting, that statement said, ore mines have expanded to the Arctic as this positive thing. And I think, oh no, I don't think that's a good thing. And then it says, and plans for deep sea mining operations and asteroid mining are underway for the more distant future. And those are cited as, hey, look, we're expanding 
how much we're extracting things from the planet, which from a resource perspective, sure, we're finding new ways to get resources out of the earth. But that argument doesn't factor in all the ecological impacts and all the other implications. Yeah, that's exactly it. What I just mentioned around, they get hyper-focused on one solution. And so you look at resources and you say, oh, we're going to be fine. We look at all these different ways that we can get resources, but completely throwing aside all of the negative consequences that those have, like you said, biodiversity loss, ecological damage, climate change, all things that play huge roles in collapse. Yeah, it says elements such as nitrogen are extracted from the atmosphere to produce fertilizer. Hey, that's true. We're getting great at this nitrogen-based fertilizer, but it's all running off into certain areas that are creating dead zones in the ocean, which is causing all sorts of other problems, just as an example. Right. And taking it further, um, getting that fertilizer to where it needs to be, you know, the shipping and transportation, so the CO2 emissions that that causes. When it comes to resources, we're not just talking about depletion. We're talking about peak, right? Peak resources. And so it's not just about the ability to extract that resource, but also to process it, to transport it, basically to get it to its end user. And that has to be done at a rate that meets demand. So there's so much that goes into those resources that goes beyond just, okay, how much of that resource is in the earth and how fast can we simply find it and extract it? All the other parts of the supply chain go into that. And there are so many pieces to the supply chain that involve other resources like petroleum and oil for shipping and and all those types of things as well. Awesome. So for the first argument, we kind of said, yeah, it's pretty bogus. For the second argument that we've been looking at, I think there are a lot of valid points. I don't think the argument in and of itself is totally flawed. It's just that it fails to factor in other things, like the fact that we're running out of time, like the fact that there's these other ecological and economic impacts, like the fact that we will need more and more resources just to develop the kind of advancements and solutions that we're already having a shortage of resources for. Yeah, that last point that you make goes back to episode two when we talk about how there's a declining return on technological advancements over time. If if you don't remember that episode, go back and listen to that because we talk about this idea. Um, it's a widely known idea. Joseph Tainter specifically talks a lot about it, but how after you've picked a low-hanging fruit, every further advancement of technology requires an exponential increase in the amount of resources, whether that's labor, money, energy, and other resources that have to go into an incremental increase in that technology. And we're rapidly, it seems, hitting a point where the amount of resources needed for these huge technological advancements that have to happen in order to keep our resources in check is just exploding. All right, so let's move on to the next argument that I see out there. And honestly, this one I think is really compelling. And it's essentially just that, hey, the data is wrong. And I don't know that we can definitively prove or disprove this. But when we say, hey, we're hitting peak anything, peak oil, for example, how do we know how much oil is out there? And clearly there are methods for discovering what's beneath the surface. And I think there have been so many people and millions of dollars, billions of dollars put toward evaluating how much oil we still have left. And yet I've heard people tell me like, yeah, I'm not too worried because it seems like they always find another one. They're always surprised that they find this oil field, make a new discovery. And so if we're making an argument based on data that we have, that argument is only as valid as the data itself is. There's one really fascinating, more scholarly article, and it's actually trying to do a little bit of what we're trying to do here, which is evaluate claims that have been made against the idea of resource limitations. 
But in the abstract of the article, it's mentioning some of the other ideas that are out there. And it says, according to this mood of buoyant optimism, the widespread anxiety about future resources is seriously mistaken because of severe overestimation of resource scarcity, as well as underestimation of the efficiency of spontaneous market reactions. So if I come to you and I say, hey, you're about to run out of money. But then we look at each other and say, well, neither of us really know how much money is in your bank account. We've got some guesses, but we don't know the exact amount. We don't have tools to see that. And we don't even really know what your income is for sure or what your expenses are. If we don't have the data, then we can't make a solid claim. And I frankly don't know how to validate the data that we're using to make the claim that we're running out of resources. Yeah, I think I understand the argument there. And it's a big question mark. I don't have the data. I rely on the data that everyone else relies on. So how do we know what the actual number is? But part of me kicks back against that a bit because, you know, for example, with oil, well, yeah, there's enough oil in the ground that we could, I think it was at least 70 more years worth of oil at our current rate. I don't think the question is, is there enough oil? It's, is that oil extractable at a positive EROEI, right? We might not know how much of a certain resource there is in the ground, but that in and of itself is part of the problem. If we don't know it's there, how do we extract it, right? And it could be that, yes, we continue to find more and more little by little, but that again leads to that same logical fallacy to me that just because we've found another oil field just in time (laughs) doesn't mean we're going to keep finding more oil fields just in time. And it seems like a pretty logical conclusion to come to that as our use accelerates, of these resources at an exponential rate, the chances of finding enough of it again and again is going to decrease. When we talk about, again, going back to peak anything, it really just doesn't have anything to do with how much of that resource exists. It simply has to do with how much of that resource can we extract at a positive EROEI and get to the end user in time for it to serve its purpose. But the core of that argument, I I suppose has some validity to it as far as sort of a vague question mark because yeah maybe maybe we have no idea how much oil is in the ground and we'll actually find out that there's 20 times the amount of oil that we thought and it's going to be really easy to extract and all that but i feel like we have to go based off of the data that we have and the data that we have is based off of the current technology that's available to us to know that and i think it would be foolish to say i feel comfortable and safe because there's a possibility that maybe there's a bunch of resources we don't know about And so I think logically here, there's really no problem with the argument. Like with anything that we ever talk about, you have to make a decision on which voices to trust. There's always going to be somebody claiming a certain number of whatever it is or research that backs up what they're saying. And you really do have to make a decision on which sources you trust the most. But I think you made a beautiful point there, which is if the data is flawed, if we don't know that there really is more of whatever resource out there, that in and of itself is a problem because unless we can quickly come up with better methods for finding it, it doesn't matter anyways. Yeah, going back to the sort of analogy that you gave of my bank account, it sort of feels like the argument they're making is like saying, okay, I don't know how much money is in my bank account, so I'm just gonna spend what I spend every month. And suddenly if I find myself going into more and more debt, it's a sign that there might not be enough money in my bank account, right? But while I don't know, I might not have all the data about what my income is or what money is there, what's available to me in my savings account, it would be foolish for me to continue to spend like I was spending or to even increase my spending because I don't know, maybe somebody put a million dollars in my bank account. You know, maybe that happened. 
I don't know. I don't have the data to know. So it's like it's like throwing your hands up in the air and saying, maybe there's a miracle going on in the background that we have no idea about. So let's just keep being reckless. You know, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, you can't argue with the fact that it could be true. Someone could be putting a million dollars in my bank account. It doesn't make it something to rely on. And I think where it becomes a little more nuanced isn't when people are just saying, like, yeah, who knows? Maybe the data is right. Maybe it's wrong. It's when people are saying, well, yeah, so-and-so is saying we're running out of soil or sand or oil or whatever. But here's this other person saying that we've got plenty more. And that's when it becomes much harder to argue because then it's me saying, well, no, my source is right and yours is wrong. And they're saying the same thing. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And that's one of the reasons why we've said from the very beginning do your own research on this stuff, right? Like we're using our sources, we're doing the research, but there are a lot of sources out there who agree with us and a lot of them that aren't going to agree with us on these things. So do your own research, look at the sources you trust to come up with your own conclusions. Don't let us be your only source for sure. And it is kind of a fallacy to rely on consensus. You can't say like, just because the majority of scientists say this, then that means it's true. However, if the vast majority of the people who are putting all the time into looking at what the research methods are and how the data was arrived at, if they're at a general consensus that we are running out of resources, then I think it's a little bit safer to assume that they're more correct than the small minority who are making these counterclaims. So obviously that doesn't make it perfectly trustworthy just because you've got the majority of scientists saying there's a problem here, but I feel more comfortable trusting it. All right, the last one that I want to highlight, the last argument against resource limitation, has a little bit more of a story to it. So there's somebody that we've actually mentioned in the past, Professor Paul Ehrlich. And a long time ago, he had written a book called The Population Bomb, which made a mathematical case for why the growing population, when mapped against limited resources, was going to create a problem. There was another professor named Julian Simon, who was an economist, who read that book and said, like, hey, this actually all makes sense, but I want to go look at the data on my end. He comes back and says, based on my data, I don't think we're running out of resources. I think we're becoming more abundant. So they have discussions about it for years. Finally, they decide to make a bet. And this is a famous bet. I've seen this multiple times in the past. But the bet was based on this assumption that if resources are running out and becoming more scarce, then the price should go up, which is like generally true, right? That's an economic principle that the more scarce a resource, if you've got the same or even heightened demand, then the price will increase. So the two of them, Simon and Ehrlich, decided on five non-renewable metals and Ehrlich got to pick the metals. He picked copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. And then the two of them said, let's wait and see what happens to prices over the next 10 years. So if you didn't catch all that, the bet was whether basic commodity prices would rise over 10 years. It was between September 29th of 1980 and September 29th of 1990. At the end of those 10 years, those prices in real terms had fallen by 36%. So Ehrlich apparently had to pay Simon $576. I have no idea why the number was 576. (laughs) Corey, if you and I made a bet, I think we'd round it out a little bit more. (laughs) And so people have used this for years saying like, look, they looked at this over 10 years. If we were really running out of these resources, 
then prices would have gone up and instead they went down. But there have been others who have said, well, maybe they were just lucky or maybe it was just too short of a period of time. And that's when Dr. Gail Pooley, who's a professor of economics at BYU-Hawaii and another individual by the name of Marion Tupi or Tuppy at the Cato Institute, they decided to make this a little bit more robust. They ended up creating something called the Simon Abundance Index. So what they did to expand on it is instead of just having those five metals, they chose 50 commodities and they included things like food and energy. And then instead of just having a 10-year period of time, they made it a 38-year period of time. So from 1980 to 2018. And they went into it with this hypothesis, kind of agreeing with Simon. And they thought, you know what? Innovation in technology causes costs to go down and it causes wages to go up. So in order to factor all that in and to measure it, what they decided to do is they they took the price of whatever commodity it was and they divided it by the amount of money that people were making at the time per hour. So Corey, if there's a commodity that for one unit of it, it costs you $20 and at the time you're making $2 per hour, then you get that ratio, which would be the same ratio as if 38 years later, that commodity now costs $200 and you're making $20 per hour, right? That would indicate it costs you the same amount of time to earn that thing. So they did this big analysis and when they compared that ratio from 1989 to that ratio in 2018, it turns out that over that time, the, the time price had dropped by 70%. And at the same time, the population went from 4.5 billion to 7.6 billion people, which was about a 70% increase. So if you think about that, population goes up by 70% and they're saying, well, the amount of time it takes for people to earn the same commodities has gone down by 70%. That means that for every 1% increase in population, the time price goes down by 1%. And the way they've made their conclusions about this is they've, they've used it to argue that we're becoming way more efficient with the resources we have. And that if 100 people are born, that's not just 100 more consumers or mouths to feed. It's 100 more innovators and creators, right? So for every person that's born, we don't just add another mouth. We also add two hands and we add 10 trillion brain cells. And it's essentially this idea that, hey, based on this data, we essentially can expect unlimited abundance. So anyways, I've got some thoughts around it, but I want to turn it to you, Corey, and just hear your response. Yeah, I think this is another one of those areas where, you know, it's an awesome argument and it feels very counterintuitive. Again, with technology, we have become much more efficient at extracting resources. And in a lot of cases, it's resulted in reduced costs for a lot of goods. You know, Paul lost that bet based on that. And, and there's quite a few points that, I, that I'll make with this one, but I think the first and sort of most simple is that the peak of any resource typically comes at the end of a boom for that resource. You know, you think of peak oil in the United States in the 1960s. The decades before peak oil in the U.S., oil production and extraction was just growing exponentially. It was exploding. I'm sure that people in the 30s and 40s and 50s were just saying, we are getting so good at extracting oil. You know, this is amazing. As we're coming out with new technologies, we're just extracting it faster and faster and look at where it's leading us, right? And it's a bell curve. It went up, it peaked, and then it came back down. So I think this argument is right 
up and to the point until it's not anymore. And then it's dead wrong. <laughs> it goes back to that straw man idea that because it's worked up till now does not mean it's going to continue to work the way that it has. Limits to growth and this idea that we are on a finite planet with finite resources, it does mean that one day, whether that day is tomorrow or whether that day is in a thousand years, there will be no more resources to extract from the earth for humans to progress with. Those hundred mouths that they're saying they don't view as a hundred mouths, they view them as a hundred innovators, a hundred, you know, two hundred hands, ten trillion brain cells. The rate at which we would have to continue increasing the number of people on Earth in order to provide the amount of resources that we'll need to make up for the decline in return on technological advancement, you know, that requires an exponential growth of people, which again is an exponential growth of resources, which at some point has to peak and decline. One thing I think that's interesting is that all the people involved in this conversation are economists. You know, they're not necessarily scientists. Economics is is a theory. So they're saying that because over time resources have become more abundant because of technology, that it's going to continue that way. That's what the theory is showing. So we're going to go based off of that model and that theory. But to me, that's just simply not based in reality and facts and science, which say, no, there's a limit to the amount of growth we can have. There's only so many resources. And at some point, our ability to extract those resources has to peak and inevitably decline. Yeah, those are such good points. And I will say that this data, in my mind, is really compelling. If you and I were doing this podcast back in 1980, I imagine we would have looked at that book from Ehrlich, The Population Bomb, and seen how logically and mathematically it was all lined out. And if we had to put money in on it, we would have sided with Ehrlich, and we would have been surprised that Simon was the one who won. I think it is a little bit counterintuitive, at least based on the way that they've measured it, that as we've been using more and more resources over the last 38 years, the amount of time it takes somebody to earn those commodities is actually less than it was before. But I agree with you that there are some flawed assumptions there. And kind of like what you were saying, resource depletion and our consumption of those resources, our extraction of those resources, the price of those resources, it's not linear. Like if there are a million tons of copper available in a copper mine, you might be increasing the rate that you're extracting that copper all the way right up until it runs out. Or going back to the bank account analogy, just because I'm running out of money doesn't mean I can't spend faster than I've ever spent before. So I think there's an assumption here that there's kind of this consistent linear pace. And to me, that's flawed. And, and going along with that, there are lots of factors in an economy and the way prices work. So for example, look at the year 2020 or early 2021. In the United States, there's all sorts of stimulus that's given. You know, the government waves their magic wand and creates a ton more digital money. Well, you could look at that year and say, wow, everyone got this big boost in their bank account and they haven't necessarily worked more hours and yet they're prospering economically. They're able to buy more commodities for the same amount of work that they did in the past. And that's just an example, but there's so many factors that go into the way things are priced. And so I honestly don't think you can completely connect the dots. You can't say, oh, because the price on these commodities went down in this metric, that means that we're not running out of resources. It's a little bit apples and oranges. You're not necessarily looking at a direct output. You're looking at an indirect impact that you anticipate. And so 
again, I think they're making some assumptions that there's no way to claim are actually telling the story that they think they're telling. Yeah, you know, I've seen some interesting things about that bet between Paul Ehrlich and Simon. Some of them, for example, are that if that bet had gone on for longer, a 25-year period instead of 10, Simon would have lost. They also said if they would have done it based on um, all commodities instead of just five commodities, Simon would have lost. You know, I think partially Ehrlich just made a mistake in the parameters of the bet, you know, and, and the way he chose to do it. Simon went on to make other similar bets that he lost multiple times. But one interesting thing is, again, going back to this idea of what happened with oil in the United States before it peaked. If you look at a graph of gasoline prices per gallon with inflation-adjusted numbers, the price of gasoline decreased all throughout the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s in that time period where it was abundant and we were finding new ways to extract it and everything was going so great. And then you look at the 1960s and 70s and there was a huge spike and it went from consistently going down to consistently going up. And that's, you know, it's the inverse of the bell curve that you see for production of that resource. So just because prices have consistently come down over time doesn't mean they're going to continue to do that forever. I think when we price commodities, it's on the current availability. It's not on the future availability because we look at the future availability as being infinite. They talk about petroleum. And if we actually charged for the end product gasoline, what it was worth, we'd be charging like a million dollars a gallon because of its scarcity. But we don't look at that. We look at how much we've got extracted right now how much is available based on demand, and, and that's how you get your price. And it's the same thing with every resource. So if you look at the price now of any resource, it's going to be based on how much of that resource we are able to extract at this moment, how much is available to me right now. It says nothing of the moment when we pass that peak, after which prices inevitably have to increase because the scarcity increases as well. When it comes to the example of peak oil in the United States, you know, we're lucky in the United States because we had access to other countries' oil that we could purchase from them. And now with current technologies, we're sort of just stumbling. We're dragging at the bottom of the barrel, getting that last bit of gross, unconventional, you know, shale oil out of the ground, and we're hanging on. But anyway, all that's just to say, prices are great until you hit the peak, and suddenly they're not so great anymore, and, and supposedly nobody sees it coming, right? Yeah, what you said really demonstrates that it's a bit of an unfair conclusion for them to draw. Trying to force a correlation into a causation or force a tangential indicator into a direct indicator, and they're not really justified in doing that. One other thing I'll say here is I would be wary of trusting a study or an index like this one that we mentioned at face value. And it could be that they were extremely careful in removing biases from the data. And I haven't looked into all the details of what numbers they used. But for example, if they're using an average and they're saying, on average, wages have gone up this much, now compare that to how much commodities have gone up. Oh, look, we're doing way better. Well, if for 9 out of 10 of us, the wages have gone up 1%, and for the 10th person, wages have gone up 2,000%. For the CEO who's making 370 times what he was making before. Right, that's going to skew the average way up. And even though the rest of us are all struggling to get by, and we can't make ends meet, and we can't purchase those commodities, and yet person number 10, they could live a lifestyle 
you know, 300 times as lavish as the rest of us. It, it just doesn't tell an accurate story. I'm also not sure what demographics they looked at as they looked at the data. I doubt they had accurate global data on wage increases. Were they looking at regional data, you know, for the U.S. on wage increases at the same time as they're looking at regional data for commodity price increases or decreases? Like if they're only looking at the U.S., that might tell a different story if the whole rest of the world is having this massive problem and yet here in the U.S. we're not. And it wouldn't be fair to only look at it regionally because when we're talking about resource depletion or resource limitations, that's a global thing. And even within that demographic, there's sub-demographics. If they're just looking at the U.S., like, hey, maybe the state of California, yeah, wages went way up in comparison to commodity prices, but everywhere else, that wasn't the case. And so the real story is potentially that we've got this huge problem, and yet that's being hidden by the fact that they're picking and choosing, you know, kind of cherry picking the averages that tell the story they want. Yeah, you can make stats say whatever you want them to say. There will always be a way to to change and manipulate those. And we're not necessarily saying that that's what they've done, but there's not really any way to know, <laughs> you know, exactly how they found their data. And, and that's the types of questions you have to ask about every source that you're getting information from. So I think all of these counter arguments for me highlight just how complex of an issue it is. I wish it was just a black and white answer. It was really clear to see yes or no, or exactly how big of a problem this is. In the end, we're trying to answer, you know, how much is left of these resources and how fast are we using it? Will we run out? And if so, how soon? And then to get more specific, we don't just care about how much is left. We care about how sustainable is it for us to continue to extract it? Is it always going to be economically feasible? Can we extract it fast enough to keep up with the demand, especially as demand continues to increase, our consumption increases with our population and with developing nations consuming more and more? And so I think here we've focused on the counter arguments. But like I mentioned at the very beginning, most of what I view as credible sources out there are claiming that we have a serious problem and we are running out of resources. Some of these counter arguments are just kind of bogus. Some you can't really prove one way or another. Some make some valid points, but don't factor in everything that should be considered. But at least for me, Corey, it's really enlightening to see the other side of it and make sure I gain a well-balanced perspective. Yeah, it's interesting to hear claims from from the other side, right? And while I do feel like there are some valid points made, hearing them and then discussing them, it, it is surprising to me that there's not a lot more concern around this. And I know, like you said, there are a lot of sources out there who are looking at resource depletion as, as a problem in a lot of sectors. But it feels like the arguments against resource scarcity, they seem kind of some of them are like they're grasping at straws a little bit, you know, and it, and it feels like like there's just not a super strong case. Like their strongest case is that maybe we don't fully grasp all the data and that fa that logical fallacy of saying things have been great up to now, so they're going to be great forever. This has been really interesting and enlightening for me as well. And I know we had said at the beginning, and this remains true for this episode and the future episodes in this series, that we are humbly open to all counter arguments and to accepting those counter arguments and accepting that we may not have answers to those counter arguments, right? We're also humble in admitting that we're not perfect in our knowledge. There's every possibility that we're making our own logical fallacies in these comments and these conversations. If so, we'd love to hear from you, the listeners, about, you know, if you've caught any of those or really anything else, if you have anything else to add to the conversation, points we missed, 
something you may feel that we're wrong on. But for the most part, I guess I kind of feel a little underwhelmed by the counter arguments, the strongest counter arguments that are presented from those saying that we're going to have enough resources to keep us going indefinitely. Yeah, and this might be just kind of a warm up for us, honestly, because with other topics, you know, topics around specific technologies, climate change, our economic system, the political system, there's a much longer list of counter arguments to the things that we've claimed. And I would love to really evaluate those from the perspective of just trying to seek truth. If we have been wrong about things, great, let's find that out and let's publicize that. If there are flaws in counter arguments, let's identify those so that we can be that much more informed and that much better at speaking to the issues that we're facing. And on every topic that we ever discuss, there's obviously subject matter experts out there that could give us some great perspective. So like you said, I would love if those who are listening have additional thoughts, if they would share those with us. Okay. Awesome. Kellen, thank you so much again for doing the research this week. I have loved this episode. This has been a lot of fun for me. We'd like to hear feedback from you as well, just on the idea of this series and, and how you enjoyed or didn't enjoy this episode. Let us know your thoughts. Thanks so much. And we'll speak next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.